just like many other countries around the world, the United States has a refugee program. So there's the normal avenue through which a person could apply to become a citizen of the United States, but there's a special side ramp of refugee status that if you, for one reason or another, live in a country where you are in danger because of politics or your religion or a number of other reasons, you can apply as a refugee for asylum in the United States of America. I found out a few years ago that um, when you apply and, and your status is granted, that you apply with the State Department and they say, congratulations, you're now welcome to come be an inhabitant and become a citizen of the United States of America, that they don't just say, welcome to America, they actually they assign you to a city. Say, congratulations, your status has been approved. With the rest of your people group, with all the Somalians, you, you will go to Minneapolis. With the rest of the Bosnians, you'll go to St. Louis. And so there are various cities around the country identified as refugee cities where refugees from a particular people group will go together. And uh, having gone to seminary in St. Louis... I found out there that St. Louis is one of the biggest placement cities for refugees in the country, perhaps because there's nothing special about St. Louis. Um, It's just a city. It has a low cost of living. It's easy to get around. But I think part of the reason may be that St. Louis has a over 100-year history of being such a successful placement site for refugees because for whatever reason the people of that city have been intentional about welcoming and incorporating refugees into the life of their city. That a, a number of nonprofit organizations uh, have arisen like uh, St. Louis's um, International Institute or Christian ministries like Refuge of Nations and all these nonprofits and ministries exist to connect with and welcome refugees into St. Louis and to give them guidance on how to survive in America. Um, There's a a steep learning curve. Part of it is learning English, learning um, computers, learning how to navigate the governmental systems, processes, and paperwork. A big part of the guidance needed is just understanding Americans culturally because we think we're transparent. But for someone coming from outside the country, when your boss says to you, we're all the same here, we're all equal, you can, you can just call me Bob. And as a refugee, you think, oh, that's amazing, we're all equal. And you begin treating your boss, Bob, as if you're equals. Oftentimes, you won't have your job for long because that's, that's Bob said that, but he didn't really mean that. Uh, and so these... Ministries and nonprofits exist to provide guidance, necessary, needed guidance for refugees to establish and make themselves uh, survive in the United States. If you've been with us uh, the last few weeks, we're going through a sermon series called The Big Story, uh, following the movement of God's mission through the Bible, principally through various covenants that he's initiated. Uh, And you should see these covenants not as God continuously changing the way he works, but him adding new information and continuing the same mission, the same motion with with added emphasis. 
um, we learned about the intent for man and creation and God's covenantal care of the world. Uh, we learned about uh, the need for justice, that, that some justice must come in light of the darkness of the world in the covenant with Moses, and yet also that, that punishment ultimately can't be the answer. Uh, we found out in Abraham that the Lord is going to do his work through a specific people, that he's going to bless Abraham and ultimately all of his children, that includes us, to be a blessing to the world, that he'll redeem and undo the problem of evil and darkness in the world through this people. I'm going to read a a short quote from a book called Old Testament Ethics for the People of God. We'll be hearing a lot from this this morning. Uh, That describes the story that we've talked about so far. Christopher Wright writes, In that story, we meet God, who is the creator and redeemer. We read of the wonder of creation, the tragedy of human rebellion, the calling of Abraham and his people, We learn of God's intentions for that people and through them for the rest of humanity. We hold our breath through many moments of suspense and danger, and we marvel with Israel at the compassion, patience, anger, judgment, and purposes of this God who tangles with them in their historical journey. Because at each point the Lord is adding new information, um, expanding his work in redemption. Uh, it, it makes sense that it might feel at each stage as if we've received something good, but we, we still need more. That, that, yes, judgment comes through Noah, and yet we know judgment's not the answer, but we, we still need an answer. And, okay, so we know that the Lord is going to work through Abraham, and he's going to bless him, and they're going to be a blessing to the nations, but how is that going to work out? We need some guidance. Just like refugees arriving in our country need guidance to navigate this new culture, the Israelites are like a refugee people. They've left behind a culture, and they're entering into a new culture, the culture of the Lord. He's blessing them. They're going to be a blessing to the nations. And yet, how is that going to happen? Who who is this God, and how do they live to be a blessing to the nations? And so God sends them guidance. That's what we get in the covenant with Moses, the covenant of Sinai. The Lord constitutes his people as a nation and gives them guidance. The Hebrew word for guidance is Torah, which usually in Protestant circles is translated law. But the law comes as a form of guidance. In fact, the the root word, yara, literally means to shoot, like you shoot an arrow is a verb, and you turn that into a noun, Torah, and here's the thought. I've shot an arrow over there. I've shown you the way to go. Go in the way that I've shot the arrow. I'm I'm guiding you. I'm giving you Torah, guidance, or as we often call, law. Um, We're going to be taking a look at Exodus uh, 19 as a window on understanding the guidance, the law. Uh, the covenant with Moses, but uh, the covenant with Moses really is uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And uh, I wasn't quite sure how to cover Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in one sermon, so this is going to end up being a little bit more of a uh, a lecture in um, Old Testament hermeneutics than a sermon. Um, I'm sorry. I wasn't quite sure how to how to cover it all. But we'll begin by taking a look at Exodus 19. In verse 5, you see 
the Lord has gathered the people to himself at Mount Sinai. And he says, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. That there's this congruence between the way the Israelites are to live and the voice of the Lord, his covenant, the guidance that he's giving them. And that's because all of the rules, the guidance, the laws in the Old Testament, none of them are arbitrary. Uh, the reason given for obeying the laws is never, well, that's what God says. That all of the laws and the rules themselves are external, written down manifestations of God's character. His own personality. And so the Israelites get guidance in the law of who is the Lord. What does he value? What's important to him? And what does it look like for us? as his people, to live in congruence with his nature, with his name, with his personality. In the promised Abraham, you may remember, there's three aspects of the promise. The Lord says he'll bless Abraham with a relationship with himself. He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. So one aspect of the promise is relationship with the Lord. A second aspect of the promise is that the Lord will give Abraham descendants. He actually says, I will make of you a great nation. I will be your God, and I'll make you a great people. And then the third promise is for a land that I will give you. This land is an inheritance that your people, your descendants, may dwell in this land in relationship with me. If you're, um, if you're taking notes or you have a pen, it may be helpful on your little note space there, to draw yourself a triangle. And then on the top point of the triangle, write the word God. And then in the bottom left, write Israel. That's the people. And in the bottom right, write land. That those are the three aspects of the promise of what the Lord is doing. A relationship with God, a people, and a land. And each one of those three corners comes with implications that are spelled out in the law. So above God, you might write the word theological. That each of the laws to understand who God is and his relationship with Israel comes with relationship with God, and that has theological implications. There's things that are true about God, and there's things that aren't. And so the law guides our theological understanding of who God is. Next to Israel, or the people of God, you might write social. That there's a social implication. Because God has saved us as a people, we learn about him, but we also learn about each other and the way that we are to treat one another as his people. And then in the third corner, under land, you might write economic and ecological. That there are economic and ecological concerns related to the way we treat the land and the way we form ourselves and societies on the land. And all three of these points of the triangle are present in almost all of the laws. And if you, they're connected to each other. So if you, any mistake about one of the three points has implications for what's going on in the other point. So when the prophets come centuries later and they say, you Israelites have gone after other gods. You've 
you've left behind what we've learned about God in the theological angle. You've gone after other gods. Well, you can't do that without it having social implications. So what the prophets immediately say after that is, and you're mistreating one another. You have enslaved your own people. And you've desecrated the land and not honored its rest and its Sabbath. And so as soon as the Israelites confuse their relationship about God, it affects their relationship with each other and with the land. Likewise, if you, if you misunderstand what the land is, what creation is, that it all belongs to the Lord, you begin confusing who God himself is and who people are in their place on the land. Does that make sense? So it may be helpful to keep that triangle in mind as we take a look at some of these laws. That when the Lord is saying, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... What happens is that to reflect God's nature has theological, social, economic, and ecological implications. Let's take a couple examples of this scattered throughout the law. A, a quick one that I think is fairly clear, actually printed in the, um, the thoughts section in the beginning. This is actually repeated multiple times in Exodus and throughout the Pentateuch. The Lord says, do not mistreat an alien or impress him. That's a law. It's a piece of guidance. Do not mistreat an alien. That's a, an alien would be like a refugee, for example. Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. So there's a theological truth that all you Israelites, you serve me because I've brought you to myself, because I care about human value and human flourishing. And there's a social implication to that because I've cared for you and I've shown you the way I treat you. You now treat other people that way. You were slaves in Egypt and I have brought you out. You will not have slaves and you will not oppress the weak people among you. There's a a theological social connection. Uh, To take another example, in the book of Leviticus, there's a whole chapter given to what the Lord calls the year of Jubilee and the return of property. Let me read just a few verses from this chapter. This is a law. This is a, a piece of Torah or guidance. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. That's, that's profoundly different from our culture, by the way. Just, just, just wrap your head around that for a second. Land shall not be sold in perpetuity. For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, so the Lord is expecting poverty happens. When you get into the land, there will be poor people. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. So there's, mul- there's multiple options here. If, you, if you're poor and you end up selling your land... Well, all the Israelites are gathered together in tribes, and when each tribe is a clan, and within each clan is a family. 
So if a family's become poor and sold its property, it's the responsibility of the clan to buy back the property. Because this is an agrarian society. They all survive by growing food or raising livestock. And without land, you don't have a possibility to help yourself. Now, it's not a handout because you still have to grow food and raise cattle. But there's an expectation amongst the clan that we will come together and buy this family's property back so that they can have a livelihood. If that can't happen, but the family becomes rich, they can buy their property back. That the person who purchased the property from them doesn't have the right to say, no, I bought it, it's mine now. That if they have the money to pay for the years of rent, because that's basically what it is, it's rent, because you can't sell land permanently. To pay the rent back, they can get their land back. And if that doesn't work, we read this in verse 28, if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. So there's enshrined in the law a mechanism where no family will ever permanently become poor. So we take a look at the theological angle. There's a number of things this tells us about the character of God. One, God says, I own everything. All the earth is mine. There's no square inch of creation over which I'm not Lord. We learn that um, all the Israelites have received from the Lord a type of protected dependency. They're dependent on him, but he's protected them in it. That he's, he's a God who owns the land and yet has provided security for his people. Uh, in the chapter, he mentions five or six times the exodus, that I brought you out of the land of slavery. The implication is that um, no one, as we talked about before in the other law, no one has a right to permanently oppress or own a fellow Israelite or his land because we've all been redeemed and we're all to treat one another that way, that we learn that God, design, God desires human flourishing and the, protect, the protection of every family and every clan. That's, that's profound information about who the Lord is, and it comes with the social implications that within a clan, we have a responsibility to help the families of our clan return to their land. There's an economic angle that within the Israelites, there's to be an equitable distribution of the land. Each tribe was allotted land according to the portion of the families in the tribe. And each tribe has clans, and the clans are allotted property, and within the clans, families are allotted property. So everyone has a space in perpetuity that the family can always come back to its place. Each family is an insured the opportunity to provide resources for themselves at some point again in the future. So this is the sort of thing we find over and over again in Torah. It's, it's guidance, guiding us as, as people, as theologians who understand and have a relationship with the Lord, as people inextricably connected to each other with responsibilities for one another and with economic and ecological requirements for the land. These, this guidance to represent the Lord in our lives and living also has a missional aspect. That's why it, it's congruent. It makes sense with the covenant that was given to Abraham. Abraham's calling and on him and his descendants is to be a blessing to the whole world. 
And this guidance, this Torah, gives them guidance on how to live with the Lord, but it's also guidance on how to represent the Lord to the world. In this same example we've been talking about, the year of Jubilee and the redemption of property, when Israel, as a people, lives in the land and they follow these rules, God placed them in a land where people were always going to be passing through. In the ancient Near Eastern world, if you're in Europe or Turkey and you want to get down to Egypt, you go through Asia. If you want to go from Egypt over to what is now Iran, there's a big desert in the middle, so you've got to go up through Israel and then over the top. If you're in Asia, you want to get to Africa, there's three lands. You've got Europe, Asia, and Africa. And if you want to get from one to the other, you go through Israel. It's part of the plan. And so these laws are filled with references to travelers, sojourners, strangers, the people who are with you in the land. And the idea is they will see, they will see the way that you live. So just keep in mind this example of the Jubilee, people passing through the land, they learn that the Israelites proclaim a God who's not just the God of Israel, he's the God of everything. He owns all the world. He's in charge of Pharaoh and his lands and everyone's lands. They see a people who have enough faith in that Lord to trust that he'll provide them through the year of Jubilee because no one's growing anything to eat that year. The Lord just says, hey, don't worry. The year before, I'll give you a lot of crops and you guys will have so much you can eat for a year and you guys can just rest. You can have a a year-long party. That's what the Jubilee is. And so these people have faith that the Lord will provide for them just as he always has. People passing through the land may ask, how is it that you guys have this faith? No one in the whole countryside is farming. No one's farming. That's crazy. You're all going to die. And the Israelites say, well, no, the Lord will provide for us. And then the sojourners say, well, how do you know? The Israelites will say, well, that's easy. We were slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand. He brought us. He gave us this land. He's that powerful. We're confident he'll do it again. It's a, it creates a context for storytelling where it's, easy, natural, probably almost required for the Israelites to be constantly sharing their story of their God and the way he redeems. Foreigners learn how the Israelites are a forgiven community. They've been forgiven the ways that they've mistreated Yahweh, and as a result of that, they forgive one another. What happened to that family? Well, they were up their eyeballs in debt, and the Jubilee came along. We gave them their land back. Just like the Lord gave us this land. The land doesn't belong to any of us. He's given us all this stuff. He's forgiven us. We forgive one another. People passing through the land learn that the Israelites believe in a God who will ultimately redeem and restore everyone. That There's a a future aspect being communicated in Jubilee. That for now, every 50 years, we forgive everyone's debts. And that's because we're all headed to a place where everyone's debts will be forgiven all the time. And we're not quite sure how that's working out, but, but we can tell there's some shadow of something coming. All of these things are being communicated to the nations as they pass through the land of Israel. That's why we hear things like this. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. So we have all these rules, all these laws, all this guidance, this Torah. It may happen that our children wonder, what's the deal Why do we follow all these rules that no one else follows? We hear this. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? 
Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our good, always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. That it's an answer to the question so rooted in the redemptive salvation history of the people, pointing out the Lord has saved us. He's given us these laws for our good. Isn't this so great? Related to that, we hear about what the people of the nations will see. The Lord says, of all the Torah, keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? That the, the law has a purpose in guiding the people to live in congruence with the Lord, but it also has a missional purpose. That it's, it's attractive, it's beautiful, it's majestic to live in congruence with who the Lord is. And when the Israelites do, and when we do, we proclaim the Lord to the world. To return to our Exodus passage. In 19, I'll begin in verse 5 again. The Lord says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So the Lord calls all the Israelites, he says, you're a whole nation of priests. Now what does a priest do? The priest is the one who's the intermediary between God and man. The Israelites go to the temple, they bring their sacrifice, the priest takes the sacrifice, sacrifices it, places it on the altar before the Lord, and then brings blessing from the Lord back to the people. He's the go-between between God and the Israelites. So what God is saying is, as my people, blessed with my salvation, living out these laws, you become a nation of intermediaries between me and the world. As the priests communicate between me and you, so you communicate between me and the whole world. It's the same concept that in living out this law, there's a missional purpose, that you become a blessing, a life-giving source for the world, representing me to them through the way you treat one another by returning poor people to their property. Does that make sense? Torah guides us in living in congruence with the Lord's nature and gives us a missional purpose. Uh, well, let's talk a, a few things about what the law isn't, because that may be easier to confuse. The law is not a means of salvation. There is no point 
in the history of Israel or at any point in the Bible where the Lord or anyone else communicates that there is ever a possibility that the relationship works like this. Hey, here's the rules. You follow them. I'll be your God. It never works that way. The Lord did not go to Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai and say, here's the law. Bring the law to the people back in Egypt. If they follow it, then I will be their God and I will take them out of Egypt and I will bring them to myself. It does not work that way. The law doesn't come until Exodus chapter 19. By that point, we've already had 19 chapters of salvation. That the, Isra- the Lord chooses the Israelites because of nothing they've done, only because of his promise to Abraham, his goodwill towards them. And in this transitional passage in Exodus 19, he reminds them that. When Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, this is verse 3, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice. So the law comes because redemption has already been accomplished. It's not a means of salvation. It's because we don't have to worry about that salvation thing. We've been saved. The Lord's promised that it's taken care of. Just like we talked about with Abraham last time, the covenant with the bulls that the Lord himself promises to pass through and take responsibility, even if the Israelites screw up, they're part of the covenant. We find the same thing in the law, that there's always allotment made for sin. That's what the book of Leviticus is about. No one likes reading the book of Leviticus. A lot of laws, cut up this, put it on that, burn it for a while. Here's what all that is supposed to mean. You guys are so forgiven. I already know you're going to mess it up, okay? So we're going to include within this whole thing a paradigm where you can continue to be forgiven. Because I know you can't do this. It's not possible for you guys. But I'm giving you guidance to how to live. And when you mess up, remember my promises to Abraham. Remember, just, just sacrifice a ram. It's been forgiven. Which ultimately is a picture of the forgiveness we have in Christ. It's the same gospel then as now. When Paul is talking about the law and obedience to the law in the New Testament and how you don't have to be obedient to the law, what he's pointing out is that the the Israelites in that day have completely misunderstood the whole point of the law. The law was never, as the New Testament Jews thought, well, we're so righteous, we follow the law. No, 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 that's been taken care of. That's why he always appeals back to Abraham. Remember the forgiveness given to Abraham. The law is not a means of salvation. It was never intended to be. Because of what the Lord has done in the past and what he will do in the future, what we do here and now really matters. That's what the law means. Another thing that the law is not is gone. Which may also come as a surprise to some of us. It's not gone. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. That we're not under its authority to condemn, although the Israelites never really were. What Jesus comes as his spirit is he writes the law in our hearts. We'll talk about that in a message that's coming. But he continues to say things like, let your light shine before men that they may glorify God because of what? Because of your good works. That in Jesus, we're not freed from the law. We're 
set free from any condemnation and empowered to live it out more fully. That there is a, a gold mine of wisdom to be found in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Now, this, because we're no longer the nation of Israel, the specifics don't translate anymore, so it's not required for us to forgive property, debts every 50 years and return the property, but the intention behind the law, everything we learn about what the Lord is about and the way we're to retreat one another, that all still applies. God has not changed. We have not changed. And what's given to us is the creativity to figure out what might it look like to live that now. That we have the same guidance with a greater level of freedom and creativity. What does it look like for us as a people to design structures where people will never be permanently in poverty? The refugees who come to St. Louis are all permanently welcome in the United States. Nothing will change that. But some of them have a better or harder time connecting and adapting and becoming fruitful in our culture. We noticed uh, in St. Louis... Um, some people groups would come, and it was just they just they just hated America and were continuously grumbling and complaining about this and that. I won't name who they are because I don't want to rat on any individual country, and it's you know stereotypes are not helpful. But you could see these patterns of groups of people who, yes, they were Americans. They'd been saved in a sense and welcomed into our country. Their status was secure, but it, it wasn't a positive experience. And for others, they were able to maintain their, their cultural distinctiveness and yet still flourish in our country to connect and provide. Uh, in the church that Susie and I went to in St. Louis, our lead nursery worker was a refugee from Lebanon who had become uh, just like everybody's favorite nanny at the church. The point here is, I'm comparing this to our relationship with the Lord, that having been saved by him, the Israelites having been brought out of Egypt in the Exodus, us having been saved from sin in Jesus Christ, our relationship is secure. That won't change. The Lord cannot, will not ever be more impressed or pleased with you than he is already. But our experience of that salvation and the joy we have in participating in what he is doing in the world may or may not flourish based on the attention that we pay to his guidance. It's given to us not as a burden, but as a great freedom. That's why we can begin with a call to worship, just like the Israelites had, saying things like this. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It gives life. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more than precious gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from a comb. Let's pray.